Today I want to talk a little bit about authority. And, you know, no one has less authority than a, a, an army recruit in basic training. Uh, I know this from experience. But, you know, if the drill sergeants told you to do something, you needed to do it right away and without hesitation or you'd get punished. Uh, even a slight hesitation, right, would mean extra duty. And remember, there was a couple of occasions where the drill sergeants would just line us all up arm to arm stretching across a field in, you know, 100-degree South Carolina weather, and we would just walk across that field, and we had to pick up every tiny little piece of trash, even a cigarette butt. We had to pick them all up because some dignitary was coming, and the orders came down to make it, you know, spotless. And what was interesting is the drill sergeants had authority over us 100 or so people, and we had to do exactly what he or she, she said, but all of those drill sergeants, they were telling us to do that because of their commanders. The, the post commander had, had the same authority over those 100 drill sergeants and they, that they had over us. And even though I never met the post commander, I was too lowly, I couldn't do that, I had to follow his orders, right? I was in the sun. I was picking stuff up because of his authority over me, even though I didn't even met, meet him. That's how authority can work. And I tell you this illustration about authority because if we're going to have a life-changing encounter with Jesus, then it's going to happen because of his authority, he has authority over all things. But just as we sang that song, the amazing thing about Christ's grace is he has authority over all things. He is preeminent, and yet we have a friend in him. It's amazing truth. And as we are in this series called Encountering Jesus, we're looking at different encounters that people had with Jesus, and the thing that they have in common is they all have a life-changing experience when they encounter Jesus. And that experience happens because when they encounter Jesus, they also encounter his authority, his authority over all things, his authority to heal, his authority to forgive sins. As we've been going through this series, you've probably noticed that's a theme in Luke, that because of Jesus' authority, he is able to exercise that authority to bring healing, to bring forgiveness, to bring new life. And it's the same thing that we see today. But today, we see how an outsider... Someone who you'd think wouldn't seek or even recognizes Jesus' authority, he recognizes Jesus' authority, he experiences it in his life. And this is going to, we're finding this in Luke chapter 7. Just some context. Uh, Jesus, he was gaining popularity, as we've seen. Crowds were gathering, his disciples were gathering as he healed people. And so Luke 5.15 says this. says, but now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. So there's all sorts of people hearing about Jesus, gathering and following him. And in previous passages, as I just noted, Luke is establishing, the, the writer of the gospel is establishing that Jesus has authority. He has authority because he's ushering in God's kingdom. So he, has, he teaches with authority. He has authority over demons. He has authority over sickness. He has authority to forgive sins. And last week, we saw he has authority even over the religious practice, the Sabbath. That's what we talked about last week. Well, as I said, an unlikely person seems to actually get 
what Jesus' authority means for his life. And we see this in Luke 7, verses 1 through 10. Allow me to read this to you. Uh, After Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Now, at first read, this might sound a lot like the other healing episodes that we had been encountering, right? That uh, Jesus' fame is growing, and somebody asked Jesus to heal um, their beloved servant, and Jesus heals them, the crowd rejoices, yay, right? That's, that's that simple. No, it's not quite that simple. This, when we unpack this passage, we see that this encounter with Jesus carries a lot of its own unique truths. So first of all, what is a centurion? Because there's the main characters, Jesus and a centurion. Well, a centurion is an outsider to the faith and nation of Israel. He's a Roman soldier who's in charge of 100 soldiers, right? So a century is 100 years. A centurion is a charge of 100 soldiers, right? Makes sense. Um, And Sorry, that was a... uh, I was, I was really uh, shocked that no one got that one, um, but that's probably because it was so bad. But he's a, a Roman military officer, and he is the arm of Caesar, okay? and, and he serves as an intermediary there between the occupying Roman Empire and the local Jewish population there in Capernaum that's under Roman rule. Now, some Roman officials carried their duties out belligerently through fear, and others carried out their duties uh, benevolently. Like, um, for instance, this centurion, right? He seemed to be of the benevolent variety in that he's establishing goodwill with his subject because the elders say that, verse 5, he loves our nation. He's the one who built our synagogue. So this centurion served as a patron to the people, which explains why then the centurion was able to ask the Jewish elders, could you go and ask Jesus to do this for me? I've heard about him. Because again, as an outsider to the nation and and to the religious practice, the, the centurion doesn't have access to Jesus because he has access to the established religious authorities, But Jesus, he's 
kind of on his own, right? He's a, he's a Jewish leader, but he's not really in the establishment. And because this centurion had built their synagogue, they kind of owed him. And that, and that nation, excuse me, at that time, there was a, a real honor system, a, a patronage system, where if someone did something good for you, you were kind of bowed. You were obliged to return the favor at the proper time. And you see that the Jewish elders, they're sort of uh, hinting at this. When they say to Jesus, he is worthy for you to do this for him, he's saying, yeah, we kind of owe him. And so as a, as a fellow Jewish person, he's helped us. So yeah, you really need to go help him. That's how the patronage system kind of worked at that time. Because otherwise, this man would be an outsider. He'd have no real claim to Jesus, this Jewish miracle worker. And so they ask him, or they tell Jesus to go. And ironically, many of these same elders who were going to ask Jesus didn't accept Jesus' claims. They were insiders to the Jewish faith, and yet they didn't receive who Jesus was. But they ask him because they're obliged to the centurion. And if Jesus didn't go, if he said no, to their request. It would have made perfect sense because there's social barriers, right? Jewish people often didn't go into the house of Gentiles, of non-Jews, because then they would be religiously unclean. Not only that, but Jesus, he was preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. Now, the good news of the kingdom of God means Jesus, that God is going to come and uh, he's going to lift up his people Israel which also means, therefore, he's going to put down those who are oppressing Israel. So good news of the kingdom of God is good news for Israel, but it's also supposed to mean not so good news for people like the Romans. So it would have made sense. People would have said, yeah, Jesus is coming for the lost sheep of Israel. He's coming for the insiders, those who are uh, inside God's people. And so when this centurion makes this request, it raises lots of questions like, wait, how far does this good news extend? Will Jesus' ministry and teaching to, to do good to all even extend to the non-Jewish people, to the people outside of the normal people of God, the non-Jews? In fact, Jesus taught in Luke chapter 6, just the chapter before, that don't just do good to your friends but even do good to your enemies. And so will he apply that teaching here? Will Jesus do good to a person that many would consider an enemy of the people, but at least, even if this guy's good, so yeah, he's not an enemy, but he's still an outsider. Does the kingdom of God extend there? And Jesus answers that question with his actions, with a resounding yes, because he says, all right. And verse 6 says, Jesus went with them. Jesus goes with the uh, Jewish elders who said, hey, you need to come do, heal this guy. And as he was going to the house of this outsider to bring healing and restoration of God's kingdom, um, it showed with his actions that God's kingdom, God's restoration, his healing, his authority even extends to the nations even to these non-Jewish folks, that they're able to encounter Jesus and his kingdom just like those in the people of God. And this truth is more fully developed in uh, volume two, which is the book of Acts. 
because the, uh, the same person who wrote the Gospel of Luke writes the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, we see that. The message, the kingdom of God is extending from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth, to the ends of the Roman Empire at that time. And that theme is also present in the Gospel of Luke. Um, we see that uh, outsiders, even, come to know Christ, come to encounter him in his kingdom. So the morally suspect, we saw that. They encounter Christ in his kingdom. The physically flawed. And now we see foreigners, outsiders to the people and nation of God are part of God's plan. And therefore, they can encounter Jesus for salvation as well. And so if you're here and maybe you feel like an outsider... Or maybe you're watching online and you're like, yeah, I'm just kind of checking this whole Christianity thing out because I don't know much about it. And um, yeah, I've always been an outsider to the faith. And in fact, most people, you know, under the age of 30, right, would, many of them, especially here in Massachusetts, have never maybe even been in a church except for a funeral and a wedding. And so there are many who feel like, yeah, that's not for me. I'm an outsider. So, but what we see here in this scripture is that if you ask Jesus, he will come to your house even if others won't. And as Jesus is on the way to the centurion's house, it creates a little dilemma for the centurion. Now, I'm kind of reading into this a little bit, but I think the centurion thinks, well, wait a minute, Jesus is coming to my house? Did, did those Jewish elders kind of give him the impression that I was kind I was applying to my patronage, my, my, um, my, my place as the patron of this synagogue, and they kind of said, Jesus, you had to do it because, hey, that's not my place. Or is, is he thinking that if Jesus comes, I have to extend him the hospitality and honor to him, and he's Jewish, and even though he, the, the centurion's Roman, uh, he understands Jewish customs. He knows that that would put Jesus in a very awkward position of how, having to go into his house, he's a Gentile, and be ceremonial unclean. He doesn't want to put Jesus in that position. And so he sends another delegation to Jesus, this time his friends, right? In, in verse 6, he sends him his friends and says, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. It's interesting. The, the centurion seems to have a very different perspective on who Jesus is, his authority, than what the uh, Jewish elders had. The, the Jewish elders are, are saying, okay, Jesus, um, as though they have authority over him, you should do this for the centurion. You know, we owe him. Whereas the centurion's coming at it as an I'm not worthy. You know, you, you don't owe me anything. I, know, I owe you everything if you would just come and do this. I'm not worthy for you to even come into my house. That's why I didn't come to you, not because I think I'm anything, but because I, I'm not even worthy to come to you, let alone you coming into my house. He recognizes Jesus' worth. He recognizes Jesus as someone with such power and authority that all honor should belong to Jesus. And again, in that system, that society, there was an honor-shame system. And he's saying, no, no, Jesus, all honor goes to you. And he has such a faith in Jesus 
that he didn't even want the elders to bring him to his house. And the elders, though, assumed, well, if Jesus is going to heal him, he has to be present because that's how these things work. But the centurion, he assumes something different. He assumes, no, if I just ask Jesus to give the command, that's all he needs because that's the kind of authority that this man has over the supernatural realm. If I just ask Jesus to give the command, it's going to happen. That was the centurion's faith. That's what he says in verse 7. He says, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. For I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. That's the centurion's faith. And when Jesus hears that answer, he responds. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you the truth, not even in Israel have I found such faith. What's interesting is this passage begins with the original audience wondering if Jesus would even engage with this outsider. I mean, this is a centurion. This is an agent of Rome. Would Jesus even give him the time of day? That's how it begins. But then this outsider, by the end of the passage, becomes an example of the kind of faith that Jesus was trying to elicit from his own people. And this encounter, it's similar to the great prophet uh, Elisha in the Old Testament. So here's some homework for you. I'm not going to go into this, but I always got to give some homework. So 2 Kings 5, 1 through 14, read that. You'll see that the, the prophet Elisha, he, he heals this uh, Syrian general named Naaman, or Naaman, depending on how you pronounce it. He's a Syrian Gentile commander. He doesn't even see him, and he heals him. It's very similar. But when we look at this, the faith of the centurion, we see some very important things. Number one is he regards Jesus as far greater than himself. He's not demanding that Jesus show up because of his position. Hey, I'm a centurion. I'm an agent of the Roman government, so you better show up. He doesn't demand that Jesus show up because what he had done for Jesus' countrymen. Hey, I built your synagogue. No, he sees himself as I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Whereas the, the elders, and, and many of them did not believe in Jesus, most of them did not on the hand, they had no problem going up to Jesus and saying, Jesus, you should do this. After all, they are the religious leaders. They're the insiders. So Jesus owes them obedience. But this centurion, he'd have none of that. He says, I'm not worthy. You are preeminent, Jesus, in this encounter. Second thing we see, is that the centurion knows Jesus has so much authority that he doesn't even need to show up. Jesus doesn't even need to show up personally. And as a soldier, the centurion understands that authority includes taking and giving orders because he's sort of in the middle of the command structure. That's what the centurion is. And so the centurion trusts that Jesus, he has a high authority from God. So that when he says something, heaven and earth move to fulfill his will. And then the centurion's faith is confirmed by Jesus' word, saying, I haven't seen such faith in all of Israel. And then it's confirmed because his servant is healed. So that's the encounter between Jesus and this outsider. But now we ask, how does that encounter inform our encounter with Jesus today? 
because if you just learn a couple cool things about centurions and all of that stuff, then we haven't truly um, encountered ourselves right now, the Word of God and the Spirit of God. So how do we apply this? Well, I think the first thing we see is that your status as an outsider or an insider to the faith, to Christianity, it really doesn't matter to the kingdom of God. That what opens up the kingdom of God to you is faith in Christ. So it doesn't matter if you've been an insider to the faith your whole life, or this is the first time you're hearing about Jesus, you enter into the kingdom of God through faith in Christ. You encounter him, his power, his authority through faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Right? And, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then this passage goes on to talk about that the Gentiles are fellow heirs in God's kingdom by grace through faith. So even if you're an outsider, if you ask Jesus, he will come into your house, even if others won't. And if you're an insider, same thing. By faith, by, you know, um, by grace, through faith, we enter into God's kingdom. But then when we look at faith, we see that to encounter Jesus, you, you do, you need faith, right? That's what I just said. But what is faith? A big part of faith is understanding who the object of your faith is. Right? Faith is not just this idea in our minds. We place our faith in something. We believe and trust something about that object of our faith. And if we place our faith in Jesus, that means that faith means that we understand that Jesus is preeminent in authority and power. So when we look at the first pages of the Bible, what do we see in, that, in creation? That God said, let there be light, and it was so. In other words, he spoke it, and his authority made it happen. He said to the land, let there be land, and it was so. He said, let the land multiply with creatures, and it was so. You see, Jesus and God have that authority that when they speak, worlds come into being. And when Jesus speaks, the world will come to an end. He has that kind of authority. And if all creation marches to God's orders, thousands of thunder strikes going on right now throughout this world, thousands of far-off suns burning brightly, the earth trembles at his voice, then he is preeminent. He has that authority. And what faith basically is, is getting in step with creation. It's getting in step with creation by getting in step with God's authority over all things. That's what faith is. I trust in God's authority, so I'm going to adjust my life so that I'm walking in the truth that God is preeminent, that Jesus is preeminent, that God has authority over all things, including me. Right? Are you a part of creation? Well, then God has authority over you, and faith is saying, yes, God, you have, I recognize your authority over me. 
And a part of living in that faith is that truth that God is number one. So this is countercultural, but you know what? You're not the main character. In the Bible, you're not the main character. Yes, we want to apply the scriptures to our lives, but ultimately the Bible's not about you. It's about God and his authority. And when we understand that, that is when the Bible comes alive and we say, yes, I want to get in line with what God is doing. But the other truth is you're not the main character even in your own story. No matter how much your Instagram and Facebook stories are all about you, no matter how much your Google searches are are tailored to your desires, the truth is you and I are not the main character even in our own story. And at the end of time, when we stand before God, that's when we're going to understand once and for all and truly with eyes to see that God has authority over all things. He has the ultimate authority. And God is entitled to all glory, honor, majesty, and power. So many of us in our day and age, we, we feel entitled that God owes us Maybe even today, you're like, yeah, I'm going to come to church, so God's going to owe me. God owes us nothing. He's already given us life. He's already given his son, Jesus, on our behalf. So he doesn't owe us anything. We owe him. We owe him everything. The centurion understood that. That's a part of his faith. You know, Jesus, if we want to encounter him, if we want to counter him in our ministries here, the fact is, you know, as a pastor, I don't have a ministry. I don't. The only thing I have is what God gives. It's his ministry. This church, it's not my church. It's actually not your church. It belongs to God. And that truth has to be in everything we do so that, yes, at Second Baptist Church, Christ is first. And if we truly live that and do that, you know what? We're just getting in step with the truth of all the universe, that Jesus is preeminent. And here's the thing. Many of us as individuals, we're not encountering Jesus because we don't recognize his authority in our life. And you can't have true faith without understanding his authority. But if Jesus shows up, you might be thinking, no, I, I want control. I want authority in my own life. So that's bad news that Jesus has a, all authority. No, it's not. It's good news because if Jesus shows up and exercises his authority in your life, that means he has authority to forgive your sins. It means he has authority to bring healing. It means he has authority over death, over your life. And you will have the abundant life through Christ's authority. All of that truth comes to bear when you give your life to Christ. So many of us think if I cling to my own authority, that's where I'll be living. But the truth is no. That, that's actually going against the truth of creation. So don't you want Jesus and his authority to bring that healing, to bring that power and forgiveness to your life? I think the other thing we see from this scripture is Jesus has authority uh, to heal and to work in your life despite distance, right? The, the centurion and the healed servant, they encountered Jesus, but they never actually met him face to face. I think this is a picture of prayer for us today, right? Isn't it? 
That, that oftentimes, yeah, we want Jesus to roll up into our house and, you know, bright lights and all of this stuff and fancy things. But when we truly have faith in Jesus, we say, oh, no, no, you have so much authority. You don't even need to, I don't even need to see you at work, but I know that you have the authority. If you say it, it will happen. And that's what prayer is. Is Jesus has the authority that he can work in my life despite distance, right? Yes, he's up at the, geographically, he's up at the right hand of God. But also, if you feel distant to God today, if you feel like, yeah, for whatever reason, I'm so apart from God. Listen, God has authority over all the universe. So there's nowhere that you can go that you're outside his authority. And so that's the good news. So that no matter how far away you think you are from God, he has authority that's greater than that distance. Whether it's a distance in your head, geographic distance, any kind of distance. That's why God's authority over all things is such good news to us. And so that's what prayer is. Like the centurion, we are invited to ask Jesus to intervene. That's what prayer is about. It's trusting in his authority so that if God says it to be so, it will be so. Now, don't get me wrong. Prayer is not giving God orders. Like, all right, God, I want you to do that. That, of course, totally goes against what we've been seeing. It also means trusting in God even when God says no to our request or gives us something different because, again, he's God and we still trust him even if he gives us different orders than we had hoped. But whatever distance you feel today or you may feel exists between you and God, again, God's authority stretches through all creation. So with boldness, the boldness of that centurion, it's a humble boldness, isn't it? He's like, I'm not worthy for you to come into my house, but yet I, I want this to happen so much. I have such boldness and confidence in your authority that I'm going to ask you to do this. So too, we just need to understand if, if God just utters a word, it will happen. So if by faith you have, you're under his authority, today. His kingdom authority can work in your life. So don't go the rest of the day. Don't let today, the sun go down today without confessing that God's in charge of that sun. He has authority over that sun, and he has authority over me. And maybe, again, that prospect is scary to you, but realize it's freeing. It's freeing. You don't have authority over anything anyways, even if you think you do. But when you get in step with what God is doing, his authority will manifest in your life. So let's pray. God, we come before you as a church body and we ask that your authority would be brought to bear on all of our situations. Lord, for those who are here and have not, Lord, submitted to your authority in their lives, I pray, God, they would open up and say yes to you. They would seek you out. Lord, even if they feel like an outsider, Lord, may your spirit right now be convincing them that by faith, Lord, they can enter the kingdom just like anyone else. And Lord, you know the burdens that we all have today. Lord, there are some in need of a healing. There's some in need of forgiveness. Lord, there's some 
in need of encouragement. And Lord, we know because you have the authority that if you say so, it will be done. And so here now, Lord, the, the prayers of your, of, of your people. Lord, as we've placed ourselves under your authority, now we lift up our sicknesses. We lift up our sins. We lift up everything in our lives and ask that your authority would be brought to bear on it. And Lord, then that means we would, some of us, we, we need to change what we're doing so we're in step with what you're doing. And Lord, for others, we just need to receive what you're going to do to heal, to cast out demons. Lord, we cry out with all of creation that you would be preeminent in our lives, in our church, and then we'd encounter you and your power and authority for all that's meant to happen. Lord, no matter how far we feel from you, we know that you can. Just say the word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.